Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you're listening to Slee Ricketts. Hey, everybody. Happy New Year, just about. I'm, I, I, I uh, figured I'm just going to do a, a kind of a quick and dirty episode, sort of all in one go. I always appreciate it when uh, my regular podcasts update over breaks or, or vacations or holidays. It gives me a little... Uh, Something to listen to, especially when everything goes quiet for a while. So I figured I would, uh, I've I've had had a few thoughts about poetry and related topics, and I thought I'd slap them together here for you. Uh, I did, I saw my little brother over Christmas in Atlanta, and we talked a little bit about the show, mostly about one element in particular. (laughs) He informed me, that is, that the the Slee Ricketts logo, as he put it, could read as alt-right. We're talking about the the, the white skull, the smoking the cigarette with the the white gothic black letter font uh, on a bright red backdrop. He, He said this could read as alt-right to a casual observer. Sorry, Uh, let me say that again. My little brother, who designed the Slee Ricketts logo, (laughs) told me that it it might possibly read as uh, alt-right. Alt-right, for those of you who are not familiar, does not mean sort of right or or, uh, uh, alternative right or moderate right or almost right. Alt-right means uh, frog-posting internet Nazi. So uh, that's that's not great. And we were talking about this specifically because uh, he is... Uh, we're we're going to be putting together some Slee Ricketts t-shirts. We're just going to keep it simple. I think maybe a t-shirt, hoodie, you know. The goal is to make something that doesn't suck to wear or look at. And uh, we'll, we'll have that ready sometime. We'll have it ready when it's ready. How about that? But uh, I, had, I had initially proposed doing a, a sort of a floating white logo on a red T-shirt. And he said, red T-shirts in particular are really off limits these days. So uh, we, we, uh, we'll, we'll see. We'll look at some, some different possibilities. He has some ideas. He's a good designer. And uh, I will I'll let you know when more comes of that. But I, I figured I would take this opportunity to clarify the, the the show's political stance. I, I've really made an effort not to talk about politics on this show, mostly because I, you know, I, I just don't know that much about politics. I, I, I barely know enough about poetry to talk about that. So I'd rather not dip into politics. I did, as I mentioned, uh, vote for uh, senile old uh, Joseph. I have no empathy for millennials, Robinette Biden. And I'll, I'll probably uh, end up voting for whatever dum-dum the Democrats nominate next time. But I, I just, uh, I'd, I'd rather stay away from politics here. I do feel maybe obliged to say uh, that I, I do not favor or support Nazis. <laughs> in fact, in fact, the, the official Sleeverick's position is that we, we frown on Nazis here. We frown on Nazis. We frown on 
uh, uh, wife beating and child molestation. And we frown on the great plague of 1346 and the Toba catastrophe and uh, hangnails and uh, that thing where your kid presses her feet into the back of your seat while you're driving, but really slowly. So you can't tell at first if she's doing it, but it's still extremely unnerving. We're against all of those things. Uh, Sorry, by the way, to any of you Nazis out there. I uh, I really, it it pains me to alienate you, but just uh, drop me an email and uh, let's just say I might have a t-shirt that I think you would be interested in. So uh, next, I I wanted to mention, I'm going to be talking to Austin Allen. Austin had a really good article, kind of a long essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books recently. This is for, former guest Austin, um, author of Pleasures of the Game and uh, about a million really smart essays on poetry. But he, he published something in the LA Review of Books called Hardline Politics on the Myth of Free Verse. And it it's a fight-picking essay about meter and free verse. He, well, I guess it's, it's you know, arguably a, it attempts to be a fight-settling essay, but it certainly picks some fights as well. I've, I've already had uh, uh, one or, or several extended uh, heated conversations off mic about this. And Austin's going to be coming to join me to field some questions and objections. Uh, so I have a slew in my pocket ready to go. He's going to be soliciting some more on Twitter. And if you have any questions for Austin or me about meter, about free verse or about his article in particular, the hardline politics on the myth of free verse in the Los Angeles Review of Books. I'll put a link in the show notes. If you have a question or a comment about any of that, send me a note and I will pose it to Austin. Uh, I, I, I think I have mentioned here before, I do have a really minimal, lonesome, uh, uh, tumbleweed-strewn Twitter account for the show where I, I, I just post, uh, basically I just, I just post uh, show uh, links. As I have also said though here, there is one other social media site I frequent. I really frequent way more than I should and that is chess.com. As I've said, not a sponsor <laughs> yet, uh, but I really have to give them credit for this this new promotion they have. So the the Chess World Championship ended recently, and, and right around the time it was ending, they came up with this gimmick. Uh, the gimmick is there are already lots of competitions on the website, and there are, of course, many, many uh, con- contest tournaments, competitions for you know professional and semi-professional players, and, and all of the players on the site are rated based on the, the games they've won against other players. So... Um, the, the gimmick, the new gimmick is this incredibly simple, totally fucking brilliant. Everybody who uses the site is automatically enrolled in a site-wide competition. To participate, all you have to do is keep playing games the way you normally would against other users. The every so everybody's divided into these these little uh, these divisions as they call them, uh, and 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 there, there's a series of of uh, winnowings across the league 
over t- across leagues over time so that you know uh, eventually there'll, there'll be fewer and fewer and fewer users participating until finally it's it's this extremely small uh, number uh, all competing now here's the trick everybody starts out in a league of 30 in order to make it to the next round you have to be in the top 20 of these 30 and then and then it gets smaller from there the numbers that, that advance unlike a normal tournament though you're not playing the other people in your division or, or not you know necessarily you're playing randomly you know one of the 90 million people playing chess online at any given time um, not just online on this particular site all you have to do is keep playing these games and the the way you get ahead in your division is by winning games this is a particular formula you know you get a, you get more points for winning a longer game than for winning a shorter game but basically you get ahead by winning games as i said crucially you don't play the other players in your division you just play anybody and the other thing really important is that losses don't count losses don't count that is the person who wins the most games gets ahead but that doesn't mean that that person has a good win to loss ratio now something else you should know about the site is that the way the ratings work when you play someone in a game and you win your rating goes up and that person's rating goes down and you are always when you're randomly paired you are always paired with someone in the same ballpark as your rating meaning that uh, though people have hot streaks and bad moods and there's some you know there's some wobbliness here and there depending on where you stand in the averages and you know those at the very top uh, Hikaru Nakamura who's one of the best you know online chess players in the world what you know one of the best rapid players in the world is he's a, he's a super grandmaster you know his win ratio is like 75 percent because there just aren't that many people on the site who are as good as he is who play as much as he does but for the most part unless you're at the very very top or the very very bottom most people tend to have a win-loss ratio in the ballpark of 50 percent why well because let's say you win a lot of games let's say you're on a hot streak you're winning you're winning you're winning well what happens is every time you win your rating gets a little higher and the people you get paired with have higher and higher ratings until eventually you're playing much better players and somebody crushes you on the other hand if you play really badly you lose 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 your rating drops and drops and drops and drops and drops and you get paired with people with who have lower and lower and lower ratings until eventually you find someone bad enough or you know say drunk enough (laughs) to lose to you so it's very hard to win or lose uh, most of the time things will tend to balance out the point of this tournament right is that because losses don't matter because and because of the site's algorithm everybody tends to have a win-loss ratio that's you know roughly one to one what that actually means is that winning this tournament or advancing to the next round of this tournament 
All that means is that you have played a lot of games, which is to say you've spent a lot of time on chess.com, right? You've, <laughs> that's what it's measuring. It's almost straightforwardly rewarding you for wasting time on the site, right? That's, that's the whole concept. It's, it's amazing. And, and yet it's still sort of compelling, even though by definition, mathematically, it has, it has nothing to do with how good you are. It's just how many games you play. Okay, you might say, you know, hey, that's that's all social media sites, right? Well, sure, it's it's basically all social media sites. They all are designed to make you spend a lot of time there. But this got me thinking about a a guy a guy I know from the poetry world. We'll call him I'll call him the socialite. So the socialite is a he's a poet, he's a poetry editor, He's a poetry teacher, he's a poetry reading host, he's a poetry podcaster, he's an all-around poetry man about town. He is a he is a totally uh, nice guy, very cheerful, very enthusiastic. He's a big booster of others' poetry. His, his podcast, uh, which is uh, more successful than this one, is, uh, is basically just wall-to-wall promotions. It's just, just, just plugs and promotions. Uh, from start to finish of, of, of uh, other people's stuff and then some of his own stuff. So my wife and friends and I, being the uh, bitter poetry grouches that we are, you know, we, he, we sometimes will remark on the socialite's indomitable good mood and seemingly uh, constant participation in poetry world activities. He has managed to secure himself some very nice credits and posts, and his many poetry-centric social media accounts are, are always busy and well-attended. Basically, none of the superabundant content he generates is in itself actually compelling. Uh, not the poems, not the commentary, not the output of the organs he manages. I mean, none of it is genuinely good or interesting or in any ordinarily recognizable way pleasing but there's so much of it and it's, it's always coming there's always more of it on the way so he he so continually mentions links likes cross promotes the work of so many other poetry role personalities that he's he's you know built himself a cozy little perch in the poetry world Needless to say, we find him incredibly fucking annoying. Now, it's really not fair. It, it, it really isn't. It really isn't fair. And I think I figured out why today. As I was thinking about this, this fucking chess.com promotion. <sighs> it's not fair that we rag on the socialite for all of his operating in the poetry world. Because... Poetry today is really just another social medium. I, and, and I think looking back that that's what so many of those, you know, poetries in a golden age articles are really getting at. Poetry's hot right now. 
It's not hot in the sense that lots of people are reading or writing or even caring about it in like anything like a good or meaningful or significant way. But it's hot in the sense that its metrics are up. Its traffic is on the rise. Its content generates a lot of audience interaction. It has a lot of active users, active participants. And if poetry today is a social medium, then there's really nothing wrong with the way the socialite's using it. He's just leading his division. And I can't blame him for that. I'm leading my chess.com division. So uh, I am, I am, you know, I, I guess in, in the chess.com world, I am, I am really the socialite. I, I somehow can't bear to do it in poetry, but uh, I um, played a lot of games today and my rating is still roughly on par with that of Brian's uh, 10-year-old son, Owen. So uh, Godspeed, socialite. I wish you nothing but the best. And to all of you listening, I hope you don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Uh, all right. What else? What else? This is going to be, by the way, it's going to be a short episode today. There is still a pretty good Cameron email I've been thinking about. I'm probably not going to get to that because I, I think I just need to chew at it some more. Probably not today. It is it is late and I'm tired and I, I just wanted to knock out a few a few silly things quickly and and uh, dumbly. Oh, so I I so the the other day while I was uh, making dinner and and uh, lifting weights late at night, which is <laughs> which is how my my weird life works. I, I watched this movie on my laptop. Uh, it wasn't a new movie. It's been out for, for quite a while. It uh, starred Robin Williams as a poetry teacher who used unorthodox methods to inspire his students. And uh, it, it's a, you know, he's, he's, a, he's a quirky, off-kilter sort of role model. And despite the tragic death of a beloved student he still manages to 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 end the movie on a, a note of uh, affirmation and uh, something like even hope perhaps or at least uh, a sense of um, some joy at, at being alive I'm talking of course of the critically celebrated box office flop World's Greatest Dad, directed in 2009 by the stand-up comic Bobcat Goldthwaite. Then, because I enjoyed that movie so much, I uh, the very next night I watched Dead Poet Society as well, which which has basically the same plot, or at least the same uh, rough description. It was just uh, just came out 20 years earlier. Dead Poet Society came out in 1989. World's Greatest Dad came out in 2009. Now, people have had plenty to say in recent years about the shortcomings of Dead Poet Society. It was, a, it was an enormous hit, and it is still uh, adored by critics and audiences alike, but people have criticized it for containing some pretty dubious advice on poetry, as well as for, say, using its 
refrain, carpe diem, seize the day, without ever citing the Horace as the source of that particular advice. Uh, not, not to recommend, as Horace himself did, that one uh, uh, take careful account of uh, those things within one's control in his, you know, fairly understated poem, uh, the 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 message of which is uh, to lower one's expectations, not to do that, but instead to encourage some horny boarding school boys to uh, paint their rich white faces with faux American Indian war paint uh, to amuse their drunk friends uh, and to uh, harass uh, wild animals while while shouting seize the day and even to even to grope passed out drunk girls for the sake of you know fulfilling one's destiny really living up to one's one's potential so uh, dead poet society has some bad advice on poetry has some bad advice on being a person but people do love it and it is overall, you know, it's a much better movie than World's Greatest Dad. It is better directed. It is better shot. It has a better budget. It has a better supporting cast. It it feels a little richer and denser and more real throughout. It feels a little bit more like it takes place in a world rather than uh, in a parking lot. But one area where I think it really can't compete with the 2009 movie is in uh, Williams' own performance. Now, Robin Williams is great in Dead Poets Society, but he's a lot better in World's Greatest Dad. And I think there, there are a few sort of obvious reasons for that, and then maybe some less obvious ones. One is that uh, he's 20 years older. He's been doing it a lot longer. Uh, another is that in World's Greatest Dad, he's not a an inspirational secondary character. He's the main character. So there's just more of him and there's a little more for him to do. But I think another reason that he is, that his performance is so much better and that partly as a consequence, the suicide that takes place in World's Greatest Dad is so much more wrenching is that the beloved student who kills himself in World's Greatest Dad is not uh, a, a, a beatific Robert Sean Leonard who shoots himself off stage at the end of the movie, but a sweaty little creep played, by, played brilliantly by Daryl Sabra who is uh, William's own son, or, or his character's own son. And he kills himself by accident in the middle of uh, audio, you know, an autoerotic asphyxiation at the beginning of the movie. And so rather than simply cheering his rebellious ex-students on as they climb up on top of their desks while he's packing up his own to, to go find another teaching job, uh, at the end of Dead Poets Society, he, he has to live with his son's death and the consequences of it. So if the refrain of Dead Poets Society is carpe diem, seize the day, then the refrain of World's Greatest Dad is suicide is a permanent solution to temporary problems. 
Suicide is a permanent solution to temporary problems. And while Seize the Day is delivered by everybody who utters it in Dead Poets Society with absolute earnestness, even sort of horrifying earnestness, as in the, the, the instance of the drunken girl groping. In World's Greatest Dad, suicide is a permanent solution to temporary problems is a refrain that is pronounced with a, a, a broad variety of ironies. Sometimes very sincerely, and sometimes uh, with uh, oozing sarcasm. It is, as plenty of other people have pointed out, of course, uh, terrible advice. It's a, it's, or not even, it's not even really advice. It's just a terrible observation to offer uh, most people who are actually at risk of committing suicide, both uh, for the rather obvious reason that <laughs> it, 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 it nominates a permanent solution to somebody who might be and presumably is suffering from a variety of problems to which he might say like the idea of a permanent solution, but also because uh, people who commit suicide very often uh, have problems that are not at all temporary. This was, of course, the case with Robin Williams, who killed himself in 2015, uh, sometime after learning that he had Lewy body disease, which is uh, very permanent and pretty debilitating. Sometimes suicide is a permanent solution to permanent problems. In any event, in the movie, this refrain is used by, by teachers, by students, by uh, uh, counselors, by self-help gurus as a, a sort of a feel-good uh, utterance, a, a mantra almost, affirming that, that life is worth living and that uh, the, the despair is a mistake. In World's Greatest Dad, as in Dead Poet Society, characters use poetry and poetry-like writing. There's, there's a long piece of lyric writing that is prose, but, but which functions more or less as a kind of a lyric um, expression. And people, characters, and characters in the movie use this writing, all of these writing, uh, in order to make themselves feel, feel better, in order to encourage others, to lift people up out of their despair, to uh, teach people valuable lessons, to make life better for everyone around them. But unlike Dead Poets Society, World's Greatest Dad, as a movie, seems to understand that none of this actually works. Poetry doesn't really help people live better lives. Nor does it particularly uh, harm them or make them live worse lives. The most Robin Williams poetry teacher manages to do in World's Greatest Dad is get a few high school students to start reading Emily Dickinson and listening to Bruce Hornsby. Fine, fine selections, both. Really, you know, poetry doesn't make anything especially better or worse in Dead Poet Society either. It's just that Dead Poet Society doesn't seem to understand this. It, 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 is, it is still a triumphal vision of 
a pretty flimsy Generation X style, you know, all-purpose young white man rebellion. World's great. The characters in World's Greatest Dad are are are, are too disorganized to rebel consistently against anything. Even the 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 one resolution of the main character, which is to continue writing at the end of the movie, even that is revealed to be sort of a a lost cause. He he receives encouragement from those who are close to him, who care about him. But based on the titles of the books that we read, he's probably a pretty terrible writer. And he's really doing this mostly for his own benefit, just as with the poems that his students read to one another, don't particularly care about, or the poems he attempts to teach. If, if there is any value there, it is in uh, you know a reader's momentary enjoyment. It is not in any uh, lesson. It is not in any larger effect. Uh, and in most cases, it's not even in any meaningful improvement in the life of the writer himself. It is just a way of carrying on. It is a temporary solution to a permanent problem. All right, as I said, this is going to be a short one. Oh man, Am I, should I even get into this? So, um, okay. <laughs> this is just, I feel bad because writers, writers, as you know, they, they, don't, they don't make up their own headlines. So uh, the writer of this article named Chris Arnone, who, who I think uh, goes by they, I believe, Chris Arnone did not title this personal essay <laughs> that appeared in Book Riot a couple months ago, last month. But this is maybe the most satanic poetry headline I have ever seen. Just breathtaking. Just just, just reading this just reading this headline uh, gave me an inner ear infection. The the headline is How Poetry Made My Corporate Job Awesome by Chris M. Arnone. I mean, again, Chris didn't write that headline, but Jesus fucking Christ. How Poetry Made My Corporate Job Awesome. And then it's, you know, it's not a terrible essay. It's it's not. It's just mostly a, it's about uh, starting a new job in technical writing and dealing with Zoom starting sort of mid-pandemic and having to deal with a new rigmarole, having to do with a new staff, get to know other other uh, writers. And then he he finds out, I mean, I'm saying, he, I'm not sure, Chris either uses, uh, Arnone either uses he or they. If I fuck it up, it's, you know, I apologize. It's not intentional. I'm not, because I, I I'm just not quite sure. But they talk about, uh, getting to know the other members of the the, the Microsoft uh, Teams chat. <laughs> so fucking bleak. And uh, as they say, as, uh, as Chris says, 
Uh, as part of the process, I was assigned another technical, technical writer to review my work. When I revealed that in addition to writing fiction, I'm a poet, his eyes lit up. So was he, and we weren't the only ones. He invited me to a Microsoft Teams chat channel where we talk about poetry. Then he put out a poetry challenge. It was something about the post-holiday lull. Within the week, the three of us in the chat all drafted and shared our poems based on the challenge. So uh, there's a poem in here. It's, it's not it's not great, but fine. I, you know, the, my 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 quarrel is not with the poem, but the it sounds like Arnone made some fine work friends through this Microsoft <laughs> Teams chat channel. But the the premise of the article that poetry made a corporate job awesome is baffling. He says, they say, uh, uh, almost a year into the new job, it doesn't feel like last time. The company is more focused on patient outcomes than my previous employer. There are eight teams of technical writers and an obvious investment in good writing. My team members and boss are cool. I'm not miserable. And that little poetry group gives me life and actually gets me excited to log into work each day. That's priceless. I mean, fine, fine. Okay, fine. But all right, uh, I'm, I'm glad that the, the, the company cares about patient outcomes. I'm glad that the, uh, the technical writers care about writing. I'm glad that the team members and the boss are cool. The, the, my boss is cool is a sentence I, I, I hesitate to believe has ever been uttered both honestly and earnestly in history. My boss is cool. It's almost a, a contradiction in terms. I'm not miserable. Look, that, that's that's maybe that, that, that's maybe the second. I think the second shortest and maybe most honest sentence in this whole article. I'm not miserable. And that little poetry group gives me life and actually gets me excited to log into work each day. That's priceless. No, 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 absolutely not. No, this is not an awesome corporate job. It, it's, it's just because you're not miserable and your 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 work does the thing that it purports to do and you're not treated like shit by the people you work with doesn't make that an awesome job that's the bare minimum that that's that's what that should go without saying i'm not miserable and that little poetry group what you mean is that you are doing a significant amount of your socializing in an office Slack channel. You're, what you're what you're really doing is you are sub, you are submitting uh, all of your you're submitting a significant portion of your social communications uh, to your to your work to your corporate overlords for their review. I'm glad that you write poetry. I'm glad you enjoy writing poetry, Chris. I'm glad that you enjoy some of these people you've met. That's great, good, fine. But that's not the job being awesome. That just means you made some friends at work and you have something in common with them. Don't credit the job for that. God damn it. God damn it, Chris. No, no, poetry did not make your corporate job awesome. You are a good sport and a hard worker, and I'm glad you found a good job. Godspeed to you. I hope they give you a raise. But fuck you. No, poetry did not make your corporate job awesome. No, no, that is not allowed. Jesus. Oh. <laughs> I, I really do wish Chris nothing but the best with uh, their poetry. 
and their job, but I, 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 I can't. Oh, I fucking, I can't believe this, this essay. For six and a half years, I was a technical and senior technical writer with a Fortune 1000 company. I pushed, I worked hard, pushed myself into the corporate mold, and it paid my bills. It also made me miserable. So after finishing grad school and stepping back into corporate America, I was dreading it. But it was poetry of all things that made the transition easy. This is also, I forgot, this is also an essay that seems to be a, a sort of a, an, an apologia for getting an MFA and then going back into a corporate job. Fucking granted that there are not academic jobs to be had, but... Uh, and, 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 and granted that an MFA often comes with a lot of debt and it can be hard to justify it. And maybe you need to uh, come up with some reason, some story to tell yourself about why it actually makes sense after all. And, you know, again, I'm fucking glad if you have a, 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 an interest, a vocation, an avocation, a, a, a source of some uh, relief and poetry might function. Maybe maybe it's a real serious art uh, pursuit of art for you. Maybe it's not. Either way, I'm glad for you. Fine, good, great. And if uh, you're able to steal a little time from the company to think about poetry or to talk to some people you like, great, fine, good. And you know, even if you use uh, office channels for socializing in a, a, a way that you know, maybe puts a little bit of your business out there for your boss to sort through if he ever so chose, but you know, fine, whatever. Again, you know, whatever gets you through the day. Great. And, and again, I'm, I'm glad for companies not to be openly dishonest and abusive and uh, apathetic about standards. I'm, I'm glad for them actually to be what they purport to be sometimes. But 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 none of this means that the job itself is 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 awesome. The job is satisfying the very uh, most minimal standards for uh, decent employment, and uh, you've been so miserable in previous jobs that just that seems great to you. And again, I, I'm 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 thrilled for you to be happy, but that that is not an awesome job. Don't thank your job for that. Don't give your job credit. Don't give your MFA credit either. Fast forward two and a half years to December 2020. My thesis defense was approaching. To follow through on the deal my wife and I made when I started my MFA, I began applying for jobs. I sent out my resume to nonprofits, publishing houses, small publishers, and a few other employers that excited me. I heard nothing, knowing it was the bulk of my corporate experience. I also applied for technical writing jobs. Wouldn't you know it? It was another healthcare company seeking a technical writer that came calling. This is a story of uh, compromise. This is a story of a, a fucked up weird economy. This is a story of uh, uh, dishonest incentives. This is a story of disappointment and getting by and loving something that doesn't quite love you back enough. And again, my heart goes out to Chris, but uh, no, don't celebrate your fucking corporate job. If you really wanna pay your company back uh, in full, and give them uh, exactly what they deserve, then uh, start a fucking union. Poetry made my corporate job awesome. If you're the editor who wrote, who actually wrote this headline, then you clearly don't read or write poetry. And you are probably the kind of boss who 
want who not only wants his uh, underlings to say my boss is cool but 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 actually believes that they might really mean it and all i have to say to you is um fuck you fuck your headline i'm filing a grievance go fuck yourself please please never write a headline about poetry ever again all right i'm going to close out this very dumb and sloppy episode uh with a poem okay a few weeks ago i mentioned a poem by david yezzy this is it's called the chain it originally appeared in the swanee theological review and it was published again in yezzy's book black sea which came out in 2018 so uh this is this is called the chain by david yezzy i i mentioned this poem a few weeks ago in the last week of course i discussed yezzy's excellent essay these are the poems folks with jp gritton all right so this is the chain outside giant a woman whose child one of three all under 10 and this one may be five a girl is going wild crying keening really up the canned goods aisle, past the wonder, crazed, non-compliant, face borscht red. Now breaks down herself, the mom, I mean, grabbing the kid by the coat. She pulls her close and screams something PG-13 in the half-full parking lot, not caring that we've seen her lose her shit. Two cars down, a guy, footlit by taillights, starts tisking as he pops his trunk saying good and loud for me to hear, that's no way to treat your kid. He wobbles like he's drunk or has bad hips, slides into his piece of junk and turns it over. His brights illuminate the river of rain bubbling like sea spray across the pocked anchorage in which our cars are moored. On my way home, it's still needling me. What's with that guy? Okay, he has no children, but who's more insane? He's sure it's her. I choose him. And me? Tonight, my son actually flinches as he turns the corner, still stinging from my swat with his Nerf gun cocked. He paints the enemy, remembering him red-faced, gone ballistic, flashing teeth, down his sights, he squints and aims at me. And I agree. They will be in his mind forever. The image of me raging and the look on his mother's face. Will he, in his turn, find a different way to be? So far, he is, in his finer moments, kind. Other times he'll turn raw like me, and like me will not learn. In some ways, it's a really straightforward poem. He gives us the scene, this woman in the grocery store, or outside the grocery store in the parking lot. And uh, shouting at her kid. And then we see a man reacting to that scene. Uh, reacting with with disapproval that seems you know initially at least 
sort of reasonable, even if we might, you know, look down on him for voicing it publicly, for feeling the need to to make the point that he thinks uh, little of this kind of behavior. Then we see that he's got his own problems. He's either uh, actually drunk or maybe physically infirm in some way and uh, heading off in his car into the night. And maybe, maybe he's the crazy one. Because then we, we are drawn into the perspective of the speaker who has seen both the woman shouting at her kid and the man disapproving of the woman. And while recognizing the man's judgment and not totally disputing it, he sides with the woman. And then we see that this is partly because he can relate. Not just that he can sympathize with her losing her temper with her kid, but having lost his temper with his with his own kid and and even hitting that kid, he finds it both understandable and sort of, in some terrible way, inevitable. It's not that he thinks it's okay. It's just that he he doesn't seem to see a way out. And just as he sides with the woman against the tisking man in the parking lot, he sides with his own son against himself, seeing in his son's eyes how he must look, how he must have looked in that moment, seeing himself as an enemy. And of course, he's able to see this so clearly because, as he suggests at the end, like me will not learn, he saw his own father in this way. And, you know, it's a, I think it, it's a poem that bears out maybe the, the, the instinct I've had about poetry, about art in general, which is to say that it is moral, but when it's successful, it's not moralizing. You know, this is a poem that recognizes and recognizes in pretty specific terms, a, a real moral problem and even recognizes the the opening for some kind of solution, but it doesn't offer a solution. It doesn't identify a solution. It doesn't claim a solution. The speaker foresees his own son doing nothing so much as continuing the chain. Down his sights he squints and aims at me, and I agree they will be in his mind forever. The image of me raging and the look on his mother's face, will he in his turn find a different way to be? So far he is in his finer moments kind. Other times he'll turn raw like me, and like me will not learn. I can't help but think of another uh, sort of existentialist grocery store poem, Next Day, by Randall Jarrell, maybe my favorite of Jarrell's poems. Moving from cheer to joy, from joy to all, I take a box and add it to my cart. Next day is a poem in which a, a dissatisfied housewife remembers going to her friend's funeral and thinking herself the, the exception. And then the grocery store is the occasion for her recognition that, of course, she is like everyone else. She is exactly like her friend. And she someday will, will be in just that position. I wonder. I wonder about. I wonder if he has thought about that. 
there's there's next day and then there's also that Allen Ginsberg poem in the grocery store where he's calling to Walt Whitman and but but in both of them there is a sense of continuity there's a sense that uh, one one has to come to terms with the pattern of the past rather than to overcome it I wonder if that was in his mind when he wrote this poem because he, he leaves open the possibility that there will be some change, but the larger motion of the poem suggests that probably there won't be. At best, there will be a recognition. But really, as Jarrell's housewife says, what does she say? How does she end? I stand at my grave, confused with my life, which is commonplace and solitary. Maybe that's really it, right? This chain, this chain that links the mother to her child, her children, the, the speaker to his son and to his father before him, uh, the judgmental bystander to those he observes as well as those who observe him, this chain uh, is a chain of isolation, of solitude. These are not people who are really connected to each other, at least not uh, at least this connection is not one of um, community. But the poem is. The poem's a different kind of chain. So it's a good poem, I think, by David Yezzy. I'm not going to read it again because I'm tired. And uh, as I said, it's going to be a short one this week. But uh, I, I hope you did have a good Christmas, good whatever you did over the past little bit. And I should be back next week with a slightly better constructed episode for you. You can reach me as always at sleevericketts at gmail.com. Do let me know if you have any questions for Austin Allen or uh, any suggestions of uh, any questions, suggestions uh, about anything else, including t-shirts. <laughs> I was thinking, uh, do you think we, sh we should or should not have a giant swastika on the back? I'm still up in the air on that one. Let me know if you have an opinion. Anyway, thank you for listening. Uh, with any luck, I will be speaking to you again very soon. Until then. <laughs> <laughs>